0: Well, good afternoon. It's good to be with all of you this afternoon, as always. Uh, my name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at Zoe. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to the book of Jude. We're studying the book of Jude. We've been studying it for a while now. Um, and so if you turn there, it just has one chapter. We're, we're nearing the end of the book. As you're making your way there, I remember one of the first times that I went on a job call. Um, as a pastor, that's a little bit different than uh, maybe some of the j- job calls that you go on. But for me, as a pastor, I went to a hospital. Now, I was newly a pastor, at least a full-time pastor, and I was working at a church in California. And every once in a while, we would get calls from people who— um, wanted us to go to the hospital to visit them. And it's kind of an interesting experience. Uh, you probably haven't had this, but I got to park in the clergy parking spot at the hospital. I got to um, park right next door and, and to go in. And when I went to the hospital, I was there with an older pastor at the church, and we went to visit with this man and his wife. Now, uh, when I met with this man, he um, had no money. He was just in a bad place, and I can't recall the exact details, but he had some sort of stroke or organ failure or something that was why he was in the ICU and his wife was there with him. And so they were in need of someone to visit with them. I remember reading the Bible with the couple. I remember praying with them, listening to their story, and realizing that they had no place to go, no home to return to, no money to speak of, and no plans other than just surviving the next day. And again, though the details are a little bit fuzzy over a decade later now, what I definitely do remember is the feeling. I was talking with them, I was supposed to be this pastor, I parked in the clergy spot, but as I heard about all their needs, I realized that I had no idea how I was actually going to help them. I had no clue how I was going to be of any real help in their situation. Have you ever been asked by somebody to help? Or maybe more precisely, have you ever been asked to help and felt that you had no clue how you were actually going to help that person? As we get into our passage this afternoon, what we're going to see is that Jude, as he, he's talked about all these problems in the church that we need to be aware of, he, he turns at the end of the book to tell us how it is we are supposed to respond. Jude has talked about people who have crept into the church unnoticed, who deny our Lord and Master Jesus Christ. People who live ungodly lives, who are headed for judgment, who reject authority, who spread ungodliness. And he says, in light of all those problems, the solution is not that you run away, that you hide, that you, you get out of dodge, so to speak. What he says the solution is, is to help. And specifically what he says is that the way we help is through mercy. Look at me, look with me at Jude chapter 1 verses 22 through 23. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. We've spoken about false teaching during this series. We've talked about sin in the church, we've talked about problems, problem people even, but here at the end of the book, Jude tells us what we are supposed to do about it. He says, first, last week, keep yourselves in the love of God, and then now have mercy on those around us. Another translation, perhaps more simply, would be try to help. And so we're going to examine this charge To have mercy in three parts this afternoon. As Jude explains the need for us to give mercy, he addresses three groups of people in the church to help us have practical concrete instructions on how exactly we can actually begin to help. So let's get right into it. We're going to see three groups of people in this passage. And the first group, the first point is that Jude teaches us that in order to contend for the faith, we need to help The doubters, okay? The doubters are the first group. If you look at verse 22, it's right there. Have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy on those who doubt. Now, how often have you heard about doubt in the church? For me, if I'm honest, it hasn't actually been that often that I hear about doubt as a concept in the church. And it makes sense because Christianity is a faith, right? The church majors on belief, not on doubt. We are to believe in God, believe in Jesus, believe in his word, believe the gospel. That's kind of the business we're in, is the business of belief. But here as Jude begins to give instruction about how to contend practically for the faith with people who are struggling, he says, and he mentions a group that often goes unnoticed and maybe even overlooked in the church. The ones who doubt. That's literally what is said here. Now, what does this term mean, the ones who doubt? Now, the Greek word for doubt here, diakrino or diakrino menos, is a word that means people who are wavering, okay? That's what it means when it says those who doubt. It's a word that speaks of not knowing what to do, of kind of going back and forth. Now, to help you think about that, to get kind of a a picture in your mind, um, I imagine that you've had this experience where you're driving down the road, and as you're driving out of the corner of your eye, you see this fat little squirrel on the side of the road, and he jumps out in front of your car, and what happens? He gets stuck, right? It happens all the time. The squirrel's like halfway down the road, and then he sees the car, and he goes back and forth and back and forth, and he's just kind of frozen in place. And that's the picture here that you need to have when Jude is talking about those who doubt. He's really talking about wavering. He's talking about the fact that there will be people in the church who don't know what they are supposed to do, and that can happen for a number of reasons. The church will never be a perfect place, and along the way, we're going to find out that there are people who will waver, who will doubt, who will be uncertain about what to do. Maybe you have doubts about the scientific reliability of the Bible. Maybe you have doubts about the truthfulness of some of the claims of Scripture. Maybe you have doubts about Christianity's claims that you can have eternal life, or the claims about morality or judgment or or just all of these big ideas. And if you do, realize that these things don't surprise God. They don't make you unable to be saved. And we need to acknowledge that as Christians, we will inevitably come across wavering. We will come across doubt sometimes in our own lives and often in the lives of others. And so we need to acknowledge that while this doubt will be different for different people, you will have your own particular struggles. What will characterize it is wavering, not knowing what to do, feeling stuck about which way to go. And when that happens, what Jude says is we need to be ready to have mercy. I think the temptation for us sometimes, if we've been in the church for a while, especially for me as a pastor, right? Someone who comes up week after week, and, and I'm preaching these things. I'm teaching them to my kids. I'm telling people about it when I get together for lunch. The temptation is to disdain those who don't. Brush it off, maybe even judge those who are wavering and unsure and confused about what to do, to see them as enemies or annoyances or not worth my time. But Jude warns us against that, warns me against that explicitly. More than anywhere else in Scripture, he says, Have mercy on those who doubt. If this text, then, is to be believed, which it must be as Scripture, it means that real, genuine Christians can struggle with doubt at times. You know, um, I remember I had a brother, uh, not a physical brother, but a a friend from church when I was in college who was just seemed on fire for God. He was really involved in so many different ways. He was in all sorts of ministries. And after college, we kind of went our separate ways. And I caught up with him a few years later. And unfortunately, what I heard was that he was struggling mightily with doubt. He was starting to have questions that he had never asked before. And as he expressed those things to his church family— what he told me was that he was often met by people who claimed that he wouldn't have had those doubts if he weren't harboring secret sin, if he weren't harboring some, some terrible sin. Now, I don't know if he had secret sin. It's possible. Maybe he was. But what I do know is that his experience in that was not of mercy, but judgment. And Jude is teaching us in this one verse that this should not be the case in the church. Our response to doubt must be mercy and not judgment. Now, why does Jude say that? Why does he give us this instruction? Because that's what his brother said, right? First, James, the older brother of Jude, said in James 2.13, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. And of course, the brother who really matters, Jesus, said in Matthew 5.7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You see, what Jude is reminding us of is what the Bible has said over and over again, that people who are in need need a lot of things. But one of those things that sometimes it's hard for us to give is mercy. We need to show mercy. That leads to the question, what is a mercy? Pastor Jesse talked about this last week about uh, the term mercy in terms of how it relates to us and God. And there's an easy way to remember that you've probably heard of in church that, that grace is getting what you don't deserve and mercy is not getting what you deserve. So it's talking about how you're kind of freed from the punishment you deserve for your sin. And that's a good way to kind of remember how mercy works in our relationship with God. But what about when it comes to having mercy with others? When the Bible talks about that, because I'm not the one necessarily forgiving people of their sins. or right? I am not the one saving them from judgment When the Bible talks about mercy in this way, it's a bit more broad. And really what it's saying is it's simply reflecting the attitude that God has shown us and reflecting it towards others. To be merciful then takes a posture of kind, compassionate help towards someone in need. So Jude, at the end of his book, he's saying you're going to see all these sorts of people, all these problems in the church, and you may see people who doubt Who don't know what to do in light of that. What are we supposed to do? We're on a rescue mission of mercy. Providing kind, compassionate help to people, especially those who do not know what to do, who are confused about where to go. We do this by giving them mercy. Now, I think we can have some misconceptions here. Maybe when you hear have mercy on those who doubt, your mind goes to this place where what the Bible is saying is it's okay to doubt. right? It's okay to doubt everything. It's okay to say we don't know what's true. Uh, we don't know what the Bible really teaches. We don't know what we have to believe. That's not what the Bible is saying at all. Okay, We need to understand this. The Bible is not saying that doubt is a good thing, that doubt is a virtue, that somehow uh, doubting everything is being humble. That's not what the Bible is saying. When the word diakrino is used in the Bible to speak of doubting, it is always a negative thing. You can look it up in your Bibles. But what the Bible is saying here is that doubt— is cured by faith. That when we have struggles with doubt, we need to recognize that it's not about knowledge, it's about faith. The reason doubt is a bad thing in the Bible is that doubt is not described as a lack of facts, but as a struggle of living by faith. You see, in Romans 4, Paul says that Abraham was counted righteous by God because of his faith, and when he did that, he did not waver. It's the same word here. He did not doubt, but he walked forward in faith and obedience. According to God's promise, he attempted to have a family with Sarah according to what God had said. So doubt, Right? we were talking about doubt. It's a hesitation to walk by faith. It's a struggle of faith. And the first prescription for this, according to Jude, then is mercy that aims to grow people's faith. My friend who I talked about who struggled with doubt, one of the interesting things about it was, was some of the people in his church, they pointed him towards apologetics at first. And that was an okay thing. I'm not saying apologetics was bad, but that wasn't what he needed. He didn't need better answers. He didn't need even better accountability He didn't need, it seemed, better apologetics. What he needed to know know was how to grow in his faith. And I remember, in fact, talking to him one time as he was going through the struggle, and he told me once that that he really respected Christians. He respected the Christian faith, but true biblical Christianity was so radical and it required so much of a person and their life that he wasn't sure he could actually do it. He was revealing what was in his heart. It wasn't a battle of intellect, of data, of facts. It truly was a battle of faith. And so if doubt is not just talking about the intellect, but wavering when it comes to living out by faith God's truth, then it's not just skeptics that we're talking about when Jude says, have mercy on those who doubt. When Jude says, have mercy on those who doubt, he's not just talking about people who aren't sure if Jesus is real. He's talking about anyone who struggles to live by faith the way that God commands. Those who are wavering and in danger of being led astray into ungodliness or in danger of being led astray by laziness or just in danger of being unfruitful in life or entangled by sin, they need this type of mercy as well. The opposite of doubt again, is not knowledge, it is faith. And so to have mercy means that when we have built ourselves up, when we have worked on knowing the gospel, knowing God, trusting his word, we turn and we walk alongside others with compassionate kindness to build them up in the faith. You don't have to have all the answers. Oftentimes what we need in the church more than someone who who knows all the things, is someone who is walking and fighting for faith alongside us. Have you guys experienced that? Have you felt that before? Having mercy on those who doubt is a command. It's a charge to have a healthy, vibrant church where the members of the church have help and care for one another. Let's get really practical then, okay? If you want to be someone who has mercy on those who doubt. You don't have to go to the local college and put up a sign that says, like, Jesus is real, change my mind, or You don't have to do something like that. You don't have to get into arguments online with the skeptics Facebook group. If you want to help those who doubt, pick up your membership directory. Call up someone in the church Go grab coffee, lunch, breakfast, something with them. And then when you do, don't just talk about the sports and the weather and all that, but talk about their faith. Talk to them. Ask them about areas of temptation or frustration or even doubt. And realize you're going to hear all sorts of things that maybe you weren't expecting. See, some, maybe many, maybe the majority of the children that we raise in the church and become youth. In our church, they will struggle with doubt at some point. I'll be remiss if I didn't tell you this. This is the case. Talk to any older parent in this church who has tried to raise their child in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. They will struggle with doubt, and they will need mercy. They will need help along the way. The world is enticing. The autonomy that is preached by the world is captivating, and Christianity can honestly look a little bit backwards to young people these days, right? That's just what we see doesn't mean those young people can't be saved. But you know what could really help? Someone who is willing to walk alongside them. Someone willing to meet with them, to talk about the challenge of following God in this world, to listen to them, to care. Someone who will have mercy. New people in this church, people who show up and we get to know them and they're bringing their families for the first time or the third time or the tenth time, they will struggle with doubt Unsure if they can commit their lives to following Jesus in the way that the Bible demands, knowing that it is a whole life commitment. They will struggle with whether they can be nominal Christians because that's what the world tells them, right? You can just kind of give your money and give an hour a week and, and not worry about God, but the Bible says live for Him." They will struggle, wondering if they really need to make God first. They'll be like that squirrel on the road, not knowing which way to go feeling maybe an urge to do it, but scared about the consequences, what they will need is mercy. Someone to not just tell them, but to show them and to walk with them. Middle-aged Christians will struggle with discontentment. They will waver, wondering if they've wasted their lives following Christ. This happens in the church all the time. Just look out at the landscape around us and you will see people who struggle with doubt and wonder, should I just blow it all up? Should I blow up my family, my life, start all over, follow after something else? They will need mercy of knowing that others have gone through that too and have come out with stronger faith in the Lord. Older Christians will struggle with doubt when loneliness or grief over broken relationships assault them. And it will cause them to waver at times. What they will need is mercy. To walk with them, to build up their faith, to show them mercy in some practical way. And you know what? Pastors will struggle with doubt at times too. Doubt about whether the ministry is worth it, whether we should continue and persevere. And when we do, we also need mercy. Mercy. And so what is Jude saying here? If we just want to make it practical, just go, find someone in the church, get lunch or coffee or breakfast with them, and you pay for them because you invited them, right? Don't make them pay. And then you ask, and you listen, and you're prepared for what they might actually say, and then you respond not with judgment, but with mercy. If you actually want to do what Jude says here, to be part of the solution to a church that does struggle with sin and false teaching and, and problems at times, then when somebody tells you about a problem because you've met up with them and they tell you about what they're struggling with and they tell you how they have doubts or, or difficulties or sin or temptation, you don't just run away and say, maybe the pastors will deal with that. That's the person that you've scheduled the follow-up with. That's the person you realize needs Mercy. You don't have to have all the answers. Jew doesn't say that here. But you do need to show mercy. All sorts of believers will struggle with doubt. They will waver for an infinite number of reasons, and that gives us an infinite number of opportunities to show mercy to those in need. See, the church is called to be pure, to have sound doctrine, to be holy, but it is also called to have mercy on those who doubt and are wavering. I'm reminded of uh, the quote from Gandalf the Grey, which you may have heard. Not all those who wander are lost. And so don't write people off. Don't be afraid of their problems. Persist in trying to show mercy to those who doubt. And when you are weak or tired of it, remember that you've received God's mercy, and so we can have mercy. And this leads us to the second instruction. Those who need help include doubters, but it also includes a second group here that Jude talks about, which is the drifters, okay? From the doubters to the drifters, which we see starting in verse 23. If we are to understand that um, we need to help people, we need to also know that there is a kind of person who needs a little bit more urgent and different sort of help than someone who is just wavering and not sure what to do or struggling. This group is the drifters. Now, Verse 23 says, save others by snatching them out of the fire. Now, you can stop right there. Uh, who are these drifters that I'm talking about? Well, if the doubters are those who are wavering, who don't know what to do or where to go, the drifters are those who are clearly headed in the wrong direction. Okay? The direction that goes towards, what does Jude say here? Towards fire. Those are who Jude addresses in the first half of verse 23. Now, what does the Bible have to say about fire? Uh, What does it mean when he says that they're they're being snatched from the fire? Well, this is one area, interestingly, that the popular culture around us actually gets the Bible right. In almost any area of life, if you were to ask kind of random people on the street, what do you think the Bible teaches about, like, heaven or about sin or about salvation? They're going to get it way wrong. But if you ask them, what do you think the Bible teaches about fire? They're probably going to get it right. Because fire does have to do with judgment. I could go through many verses, but I'll spare you. Just know that the New Testament and the Old Testament are full of references to fire, and almost all of them have to talk about judgment. And even without jumping around, in this book, Jude has already used fire in that way. You can look back at Jude verse 7, where Jude says, Sodom and Gomorrah serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So Jude is being consistent here. He's talking about fire. He's using it to explain judgment there is judgment for those who reject God's authority. There is judgment that the ungodly will face, and that is symbolized by fire. Now, the Bible tells us that all people will face judgment in some way. Right? They will face judgment before God because he is the judge. And in fact, what the Bible also says is that the center of that judgment is Jesus Christ. He is the one who will judge the living and the dead. Jude has already talked about this. We've gone over this in the earlier parts of Jude. But when Jude here talks about people who who are headed towards the fire, what he means then is people who are acting in a way that deserves punishment, that deserves judgment. Jude isn't just talking about people confused by false teaching or who waver about the truth. He's also saying that there are some in the church who will act in a way that looks like they're headed towards judgment rather than salvation. And again, this is kind of a wake-up call for us, because it's not what we would like to think the church would be like. We would hope that everyone in the church would just be people who never sin, people who never do things that are wrong. That would make it so easy. But Jude just telling us the truth here that we need to understand. That can sometimes be unnerving, but it's absolutely necessary. It's not always easy. It's not even always possible to tell who exactly is a Christian in the church and who is not. This is kind of weird, right? But but this is what Jude says. This is why people snuck in unnoticed into the church. If it were so easy, right? If it was just like the good people are Christians and the bad people are not, then it wouldn't be a problem. No one would be able to sneak into the church unnoticed, as Jude says in the beginning of this book. But instead, what Jude tells us is that there will be people in the church, even Christians at times, who will sin. will act in a way that is contrary to the word of God. And so what we need to do is try to help. Again, to try to help, to try to show mercy, to be part of the rescue mission. Just as it is true that Christians can struggle with doubt, Christians can struggle with sin, and they will. And what we need to know is not whether or not we can 100% be sure about every person, where they're going, heaven or hell, what we need to know is that those who act like they're headed for judgment should be treated like they're headed towards judgment. Let me give you an example. Okay, this is maybe a little bit confusing. Um, just imagine that you're 45 years old. Okay, so some of you don't have to imagine, right? Um, and you have a teenage daughter, and she's beginning to drive. Okay, so she's starting to drive. She's learning. She's not that great at it, but um, she's doing her best. And you have a nice new car. Okay, your car has uh, lane assist. You know what I'm talking about. So you're driving on the Highway and you're drifting a little bit and your car pulls you back so so you feel pretty good about it. Then your daughter is learning to drive in your new minivan that has lane assist and you're taking her on her lessons. And now you've gotten to the point where you are now ready to take her on the highway. So you get on 75 and you're going south, right? You hit George Bush and you decide that you're gonna you're gonna go um, west. And so you take that really tall, really high um, overpass. You guys know what I'm talking about. It scares me every time I go on it. You're driving on this overpass. Your daughter is driving, actually. And she has lane assist, but you start to notice that she is drifting noticeably towards the edge. Now, she doesn't know it. She just thinks she's doing a great job. She's driving. But the car is very clearly going closer and closer and closer to that line. How are you going to treat her? Are you going to treat her as someone who is driving a car that has lane assist or as someone who is drifting towards possible death? That's what Jude is getting at here. Even in the church, we need to recognize that we have a mission to rescue people who may be headed towards death. Our rescue mission includes helping people in the church who need to be snatched from the fire. Now, this idea, this picture of being snatched from the fire, it shows up elsewhere in Scripture. We read it in our Scripture reading. It's in Zechariah chapter 3, where there's this vision given to Zechariah of Joshua, the high priest of Israel in Jerusalem, standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan is there to accuse him, to accuse him of all these sins, all of these filthy things that he's done. And on top of that, he is kind of wearing dirty clothes. That's the image that's presented. And the Lord rebukes Satan. And he says that he has plucked Joshua like a brand from the fire, right? So he's covered with this suit and this dirt and and all this these ashes. And he looks terrible, but he's been plucked from the fire. And the angel is commanded to remove the filthy garments from him. And the vision goes on to say that, Behold, the Lord has taken away his iniquity and will clothe him with pure vestments. So his dirty clothes, he's been taken from the fire. He removes all these dirty clothes and he's been given new, white, pure clothes that symbolize forgiveness. And this is a picture of the gospel. This is a picture of salvation. God can take people who are dirty. God can take people who are, are, are headed towards the fire. He can snatch them out of it, those who are headed towards judgment, and he can cleanse us and forgive us and make us new. This is the only time in Scripture we see this sort of image of snatching someone from the fire happen. And what we see here, if we put it together with Jude, is that when we talk about saving people by snatching them from the fire, it's not us who do the actual saving. It's God. He's the only one who can do it. And so what is Jude telling us to do? It means simply that we are to tell people about the need for repentance. About the need for repentance. You know, we talk about being a gospel-centered church at times. Maybe you've heard that in your church life. You've heard people talk about being gospel-centered. And what does that really mean? We need to understand how the gospel applies to all of life and also how the gospel really is the key to understanding so much of the scriptures. And we see the gospel right here in Jude. We've talked about it. For those who are doubting, for those who are wavering, for those who are not sure about where to go, right? Not, not sure how they can live right. We need to preach to them faith. We need to show them faith. And then for those who are drifting, who are going the wrong direction, who are headed towards judgment, we need to preach to them repentance. That's the gospel. Repentance and faith, that is what the gospel call is of the Bible on our lives, that we believe in Jesus Christ. We repent of our sins and we put our faith in him, and by that we are saved. And this is why Jerry Bridges so memorably said, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves daily. Because the gospel, faith and repentance is precisely what we need. And for those who drift, for those who are headed towards judgment, who who seem to be on the path that heads to fire, we warn and speak the truth and we talk about repentance and we pray that God will snatch them. In James chapter 5, James talks about this rescue mentality. You can look there if you want. James chapter 5 verse 19. This is the end of the book. James says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude." Of sins. Again, even in the church, we have this mission to help people who are sinning and bring them back from judgment. You know, one of the tragedies of the modern church is an unwillingness to say that sin is sin and to call the church itself, the people in the pews at times, to repentance. But this is what Jude requires of us. It's the only way we can fight for the souls of those who appear to be headed for fire. So how do we apply this? Well, a couple of ways. First, we need to apply it to ourselves, okay? We need to apply it to ourselves. As someone who is part of the church, one of the worst things that you can do is assume that you aren't a person who has crept in unnoticed but denies our Lord and Master, Jesus. One of the worst things you can do is just assume That because you're in the church, you're not one of the people that Jude referred to in the first 16 verses of his book. It can happen to anyone, and myself included. We need to examine ourselves. Now, there is something that Christians call assurance of salvation, which is kind of answering this question. How can you be sure you are saved? And there's a double-edged answer to that. On the one hand, you can be sure that you're going to heaven. You can be sure you're saved because... It's Jesus's work alone that does it. It's not about yourself. It's not about all your good works, how much you have done that you somehow paid off your own debt to God so that you can make it to heaven. Because it is all what Jesus did, his life, his death on the cross, his resurrection, you can be sure that you can't just lose your salvation by lacking performance. It's not based on how well you do before God. But on the flip side, when the Bible talks about assurance of salvation, it also talks about not having assurance sometimes. And the, the reason or the time when you shouldn't have assurance according to the Bible is when you are living in willful, disobedient sin. You see, if you're seeking to love God, if you're seeking to live life according to His will, and you're trusting in the righteousness of Christ, you should have the full assurance that you are saved. But if you are living in disobedient sin, willfully planning it, looking forward to it, doing it over and over again, then you should have questions about whether you are truly saved. Not because you are saved by your works, but because faith without works is dead. You can look at me at First Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and while you're there, you can use your Bible to fan yourself, because I know the AC died at some point in the past uh, 10 or 20 minutes. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? that should cause you to realize your need for repentance. So it applies to us first. It applies to ourselves. We need to look at ourselves to understand whether or not we are headed towards judgment. And secondly, it also applies to our children. And again, this is kind of a touchy subject. It's not a popular thing to say in church, but again, it needs to be said. If a person grows up in church, even if they said the sinner's prayer, but they begin to live according to the flesh, rejecting God and pursuing sin, what Jude is telling us is we should think, we should assume, we should pretty much guess that that person is headed towards the fire and needs to be saved. Some of the children who we raise in the church will reject the Lord. Maybe not outright with their words, but they will reject him with their life. And when we see that, when they do, we need to respond rightly. There are a couple ways that we can respond incorrectly. I think some parents, when they see this start to happen, they get into kind of a, a crazy controlling mode, right? They get into ultra-helicopter parent action. They, they try to control every aspect of the child's life because they begin to see how they're fading or drifting away from the Lord. It never works out the way they plan. On the other hand, some parents just give up, right? They go soft on the gospel because they cannot bear the thought of their children going to judgment, They assume as long as he said yes to Jesus at VBS 35 years ago, he has that, that fire insurance, so to speak. But Jude tells us neither of these responses is right. Instead, what we need to do is just go back to the basics. We've got to try to save them by snatching them from the fire, by talking to them about repentance. Not to control them, not to give up on our convictions. But to tell them, as the Bible says over and over again, that wide is the gate, and easy is the road that leads to destruction, and many find it. But there is a narrow gate that Jesus talks about that is open and available if you turn to God and repent. And I don't know where all of you are at today, this afternoon here. I don't know exactly how you've been living. I don't know where your spiritual life is at. But I imagine that there are some who, if you're honest with yourself, you have been drifting for quite a while. Maybe you've just been assuming that it'll all paper over in the end, but if you are living in a way that the Bible says leads to judgment, then the call of Jude and of Jesus, more importantly, is to repent, to turn from sin and to turn to Christ. As Christians, this is what we preach to ourselves, to the church, and then to the world the gospel of faith and repentance. And remember that it is a good thing to be saved from the fire. So we've talked about the doubters, we've talked about the drifters, but there's one last group that Jude addresses that we are called to try and help. And these are the defilers. The second half of verse 23. Now this is the shortest point, so don't worry, we will survive this heat. Jude says, To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained, by the flesh. So we're supposed to show mercy to those who doubt and save others who are headed for destruction by warning them and snatching them from the fire, as it were. But this last group is a little bit different. Here, Jude says we are to show mercy, but we're to do it with fear. Okay, that's, that's the way in which we do it, hating the garment stained by the flesh. And that's why I call this last group the defilers. Who are the defilers? They are those who are in need of help, but are in danger of causing great harm to the church. As well. there are those who invite others into their sin and must either be corrected or avoided altogether. And we can see how the text shows us that as we look into it. First, Jude uses the same word of show mercy as before, okay? Uh, but this time he adds the idea of doing it with fear. Now, fear can be sometimes a good thing or a bad thing in the Bible, it depends on the context. It could be reverence for something good, or it can be a fear of something that's actually bad. And the second half of the verse makes it clear for us because he says, hate the garment stained by the flesh. So this attitude of fear should have some sort of of want uh, to to avoid something that's dangerous. The word that's used for garment is the inner garment or like the undershirt that people would wear at that time. In those days, people would wear an outer cloak and an inner garment, and the outer cloak was going to get dirty from the exterior right it's going to get dirty from the dirt and from the mud and whatever else it is that you came into contact with but your inner cloak would stay clean from those external sources so for something to be stained by the flesh for the inner garment to be stained means that that dirtiness is coming from within okay you understand it's not coming from without it's coming from within now, if you're having a hard time just getting your mindset into why he's saying like, hate that garment stained by the flesh. Just imagine that your child is using um, reusable diapers. Okay, you know what I'm talking about. So, it gets stained from the flesh, and you don't want to have anything to do with it, right? You just want to drop it in the bag and have a company come pick it up and clean it. You hate this garment stained. the flesh. It's dirty. It's infectious. It's something that needs to be treated with a proper amount of fear. And so while we need to promote faith and repentance and preach the gospel, what Jude is saying is that when we contend for the faith, we also need to discern whether we can walk with someone and when we have to be extremely careful about it. What Jude is saying is that we have a duty to help others in the church. We have a call, a mission by God to, to be part of this, 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 this plan of showing mercy to those around us. But we need to be extremely careful and hate sin. In the past few years, um, my family has enjoyed going camping. Uh, we like to do outdoors things and for those of you who like to camp, you know that if you go camping, one of the things you have to do is have a campfire. You have to have a campfire because it just doesn't feel like camping if you don't do it. And um, I went camping just a few weeks ago with my boys, and it was really hot. It was probably like 86 degrees at night, and we started the campfire. Because you need a campfire, right? You have to have it. And I know there's some pyromaniacs in the house. You understand what I'm talking about. You love to play with the fire. Now, I have an almost two-year-old. Uh, Teddy is his name. And he is a, just a guy who, who likes the outdoors. He likes being free. And he does love the campfire. And when I build the campfire, he immediately starts to throw whatever he can find into the fire. Right? He starts running around grabbing leaves and sticks and food and whatever he has, and he'll throw it into the fire to burn it up. And when he does, I get on high alert. right? Because I know that that, that Teddy, though he loves the fire and he wants to help, there are two things. First, he's not that good at walking right? He can stumble at any time. In fact, he stumbled many, many times in the past week, right? He falls down randomly all the time. He trips on nothing. And so I know that he could stumble at any moment. And two, I know that fire is extremely dangerous. Even though it seems fun and we enjoy having it at the campfire, I know that if he stumbles one time the wrong way, the rest of his life is going to be affected. I tell my kids this, we need to watch out for our little brother because if he falls into this dangerous fire, everything will change. You know, it's the same reason why when there's an outbreak of an infectious disease in the local community, we don't send the volunteers from the high school to deal with it. We send the medical professionals with their gear and and all the stuff to handle the infection. Showing mercy is a God-honoring, valuable thing, but it doesn't mean it can't be dangerous. I remember a few years back talking to a missionary, and, and there was a another missionary who we knew for a long time, who in fact was instrumental in having this missionary go out on the missions field, okay? So a guy who was there for years, he was working in um, delivering people from Sex trafficking, okay? Uh, this was in Thailand. And so he had encouraged my friend, who I was talking with, to go with him to be on the mission field in Thailand. And so we were there, and I was talking, and I said, what happened to so-and-so? I didn't see him here. I was expecting to see him on this trip. And he began to tell me what happened with this man. He was part of the rescue team, right? Uh, trying to go rescue people from brothels and different situations like that. And at some point, he began to do these missions on his own, without the kind of um, oversight of the organization without the proper accountability. And some way, somehow, I don't know all of the details, but somehow he began to be involved in the very sin that he was trying to rescue people from. It was terrible. It was sad. I don't know, again, all of the sordid details, but I don't have to. Brothers and sisters, this is what Jude is reminding us of here. Sin is dangerous. So we need to know where we can help. And sometimes where we can't. And when it comes to defilers, the truth is there are some in the church who aren't just struggling, who aren't just drifting, but are trying to take others with them. And we need to be careful. Unfortunately, as a pastor, I've known people in the church who have not been content to sin themselves, but to bring others along with them, to have company in doing the things that should not be done whether a young man who sought to bring a young woman into sin with him or vice versa. There have been so many ways that I've seen this and we can understand what Jude is getting at. So so how do we deal with those like this? How do we show mercy with fear for for those who spread their sin, who are involved in things that are dangerous, who may infect others, so to speak, with it? How do we do this? Well, we need to know what sins are dangerous to us. We need to know what sins are dangerous to all. And then we need to make sure that we're acting in wisdom. See, as you show mercy, as you help others, we must equally hate sin, knowing how truly destructive it is. And we must have fear. And this takes us full circle, okay? What was Jude writing about? There are people in the church who deny Jesus Christ the Lord with their teaching and with their lives. Now, we talked about false teaching a lot in this whole whole um, book, but as Jesse mentioned last week, Jude never says that there are, quote-unquote, false teachers. He doesn't use that exact phrase. He just says that there are people who have crept into the church unnoticed who deny our Lord and Master with their teaching and with their lives. And so for us, brothers and sisters, we need to realize that one of the ways that we prepare ourselves to show mercy is to know just how terrible sin really is. Your sin can have a great effect on your own life, but the lives of others as well. I was talking to uh, Pastor Vin just this week about how a relative of his was um, just absolutely disillusioned by his pastor, who who, who was encouraging him week after week to live on fire for God, to give himself to the Lord, and then it came out that he was having a long-term affair that he did not repent of, but he went to go be with that woman. Our sin has an effect on people. My old pastor would often say, it is a lie of the devil that my sin only affects me. It doesn't. It affects your family, will affect your friends, it will affect the church Sin is pervasive and disruptive and it seeks to exercise dominion over everything that it touches. And so the final call of Jude in these last verses is to contend for the faith with the gospel and then let the gospel do the good work in our lives of keeping us from sin. See, the gospel saves us from judgment, but it is also meant to free us from sin. So have mercy with fear. Be wise, be careful, hate the sin, even while we strive to help the sinner. The church will be affected by sin. The church will have problems, but notice still that Jude says, have mercy, right? In a wise way, in an urgent way, in a kind and compassionate way, have mercy, as many have said before, the church should not be a country club, nor should it be a mortuary. It should be a hospital where those who have received help also freely give it so that many might be saved. Speaking of hospitals, um, as I was thinking back to those early years of ministry and that couple that I met at the hospital who needed that help, it turns out that that first visit in the hospital would just be the beginning of my relationship With that family. When they were released, um, they were in need of housing. So I remember going with them and and going to a a local hotel and trying to help them get situated there long term, um, and then leaving them and then realizing that they didn't have any food. And so coming back with another pastor with all this food to kind of help them out with their need there. And then something happened, there was another bout of sickness or a tragedy. I don't recall exactly what happened. I think it was with the wife this time, but they were back in the hospital again in a few weeks. And eventually what ended up happening, though you may uh, not be surprised to hear this, is that it began to be a regular occurrence in my life, that every week or two weeks I would get a phone call from this man and he and his wife would be in need of help right? Jumping from hotel to hotel, from doctor to doctor, from hospital to hospital. It was becoming a constant, regular thing. And I was new in the ministry, and I remember being disillusioned fairly quickly, right? I went from the excitement of helping someone who was in the hospital in this great need to the dread of seeing this guy's name pop up on my phone every other week, I looked at all the ways that I was trying to help him and didn't seem to be doing every, anything at all. And every time I would try to talk with him about the gospel or I would talk to him about faith or I would talk to him about Jesus, he would always say yes. Right? He would always say, I believe. I'm down with it. I want to pray. I want to be committed to God. I want to receive Jesus. And so it would happen over and over and over again. More gospel, more money, more hotels, more hospitals, more gospel. More. It was just over and over and over. And finally, I remember I was so fed up with this process. I remember driving down the street one time um, to the church, and I saw him on the side of the road, and I just had this visceral reaction that I wanted to turn the other way. Right, I don't know if you guys have ever felt this about like um, someone in your life, but that's how I felt, to my shame. I was so fed up with it. I didn't want anything to do with him. I was avoiding his calls. Now, mind you, I wasn't being super-duper generous with my own stuff, Okay. I was working for the church. When I was helping him, it was the church's money. It wasn't like my personal bank account. I was tasked with helping distribute the church's funds, but I just had this feeling that he was taking advantage of me over and over again, that he was getting so much help he didn't deserve, and that it was all lies and deceptions and wasting of my time. And finally, in the midst of my complaining, I remember I, w- I was struggling with this. Right? I had driven past him. I, was, I w- had this visceral reaction I was complaining about it to others, and I remember looking at the ministry I was supposed to be helping organize and struggling and praying and and finally realizing that the answer to why the elders had told me to keep on helping, to keep trying, to keep preaching to this man, to keep inviting him to church wasn't because the elders were just dummies who were getting taken advantage of. The reason we were helping him over and over and over again was right there in the name of the ministry that I was supposed to be doing. Because we called it Mercy Ministries. And that's really what mercy is, isn't it? It's help that we don't deserve, but that we really, truly need. That we need to give to others that it may be hard, and that we need to receive ourselves. I've spoken this afternoon at length about how we're called to be part of the mission of helping others with mercy in the church. But what about for you? Maybe you realize this afternoon you are in need of mercy. Maybe you find yourself today knowing that you are a doubter, or you are a drifter, or you are a defiler even. If so, then Jude's words are meant to be good news still to you. As great as our sin is, God's mercy abounds all the more. And all it takes for us to turn from sin is repentance and faith. So I hope for those of us who are members at Zoe and we're hearing this and we're trying to think about how we're going to apply this book to our lives, I hope as a church we are ready to help and give mercy to one another quickly and easily and even starting this week. And for those who doubt at times or who drift or maybe feel even a little defiled, I hope you will recognize your need for mercy. I hope you will recognize your need for for faith, to be saved from judgment, to be cleansed from sin. And beyond all that, I hope you will know that as much as you need mercy, you can actually have it in our merciful Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, I come before you this afternoon and I pray, Lord, that that you would help us to know if we are Christians here, Lord, that we have received great mercy from you. And then I pray, Lord, that because of that, you would help us to freely and generously give to others what you have shown us. God, I pray for those in our church who are struggling with doubts, maybe intellectually, but maybe just practically, not knowing how to live, struggling with their faith. Lord, would you work in their lives? through the ministry of your people. I pray, Lord, that people would come alongside them who would want to help them in their need, to know you, to walk according to your word, to love you. I pray, Lord, for those who are drifting in our church, even in this room, who have been walking in a way that leads towards judgment who if they look at their lives Lord there's no way that they could say they're not on that wide and easy path that leads to destruction Lord I pray that we as a church would be faithful to to talk about repentance that we must turn from sin turn from lives that are lived for our own glory and instead turn to you Lord you're merciful to save would you snatch them from the fire. And Lord, I pray for those who have been affected by the destructiveness of sin, maybe their own sin and maybe the sin of others in their lives. I pray, Lord, that they would receive mercy from you. We know that only you can forgive our sins and only you can redeem us and turn the things that we even mean for evil to good we turn in faith to Christ. Lord, it's an incredible promise, your mercy is an incredible thing. Would we as a church be a church that knows and experiences and shares this with one another? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.